On today's episode, we're looking at February's latest running research. Welcome to the podcast, helping you train, rehab, and run smarter. When I first started running in my 20s, I knew it would be something I'd be passionate about for the rest of my life. But unfortunately, developing injury after injury disrupted my progress and left me undertrained at the start line on race day. Even with my knowledge as a physio, I still fell victim to the vicious injury cycle and when searching for answers, struggled to decipher between common running myths and evidence-based guidance. That's what this podcast is here to help you with. So join me as a Run Smarter Scholar and let's break the injury cycle by raising your running IQ and achieving running feats you never thought possible. I am loving this new style of podcast episode. Um, I've done one of these before and I'll continue doing them, I guess, every month if relevant research is released. Um, So far, it hasn't disappointed and I've got a ton of ones that haven't made the cut. Uh, Some have, but um, I've just been actually astounded as to how much running research actually comes out per month (laughs) when I actually start really paying attention to it and getting specific results. alerts. Um, so I hope you're enjoying these. I have got some feedback from podcast listeners that, um, these type of episodes are, are really top notch and they're really enjoying them. So, um, continue letting me know cause I'll release and create episodes based on what you want to hear, not just what I want to tell. Um, this is really good for helping me enhance my knowledge, current understanding of running related injuries and rehab and those sorts of things, hopefully for you as well. And also is pretty, um, it's good to repurpose. These are great for blogs, great for YouTube videos, great for emails. And so, um, yeah, as I mentioned in previous episodes, I'm trying to this year, 2024, thinking of like sort of changing a slight direction and focusing more on the research as opposed to other stuff, but that helps sort of differentiate me from other channels and other podcasts and those sorts of things. It seems like the response has been good so far. So um, every week I tend to get about 40 to 50 uh, emails or 40 to 50 papers that come onto my desk and I sift through and see which ones are the most relevant across a month. That's looking like 200 and I try and sift them all down to try to um, provide the best ones for you. And last This month, like throughout the month of February, um, as you may or may not have been aware, there was some research around the effects of wearable technology on running uh, injuries. And I spoke to Bradley Neal, who was on the previous previous episode, talking about uh, effort and how the acute to chronic load when it comes to effort seems to be a little bit more of a predictor compared to just focusing on mileage. And so we need to emphasize the importance of rating or documenting or recording effort that could be in power or um, RPE or heart rate zones and those sorts of things and making sure there's no spikes in load week by week in that domain. Um, So that was a research article that came to me, which the author was happy to, to jump on. I do have some other ideas of um, future podcast episodes that will be feature, featuring a few authors as well. Um, so look forward to bringing you those. Um, the 
Next one that came onto my desk was about glute activation and glute strength and those sorts of things. And I've done an episode with Rich Willie in the past talking about the myths around glute activation and uh, mainly around injury risk and people's fears about their glutes not activating properly uh, and how that's, it's not really, well, definitely isn't a link with injury, but people feeling like, oh, when I do my split squats, I don't feel my glutes activating. Are they not switching on? And we bust a lot of those myths, but glute activation seems to be very popular amongst runners. So I thought I might share this one. And it was a little bit complicated to um, sort of get to the the crux of what the paper was about. Very uh, complex jargon that was implemented in there, but the title of the paper was how to activate the glutes best. And then subheading um, peak muscle activation of acceleration specific pre-activation and traditional exercise training exercises. Essentially what they did was look at acceleration specific pre-activation exercises, which were like isometric um exercises, isometric positions, and also traditional strength training exercises. They used like a, um, so like a hip thrust or like a split squat and those sorts of things. And they measured how accurate or how, um, what recruits, I guess, the best muscle fibers for the glutes and also the glute med. They did some exercises there. Um, I thought I'd share bits and pieces from that paper of what I found that would help you. They found that the hip thrust, which is kind of like a bridge, a glute bridge, but instead your shoulders are elevated onto a bench. So the back of your shoulders are resting against a bench. And so you're hovering off the ground and your hips dip towards the floor and then thrust up towards the ceiling. Um, They found that. um, They found the hip thrust and the knee resisted split elicited significantly higher activity than the split squat. Um, The knee split was an isometric exercise, which I'll explain in a second, but um, good to show that, or good evidence to say that the hip thrust, double leg hip thrust is better at glute max recruitment and activity than a split squat, which is a kind of like a lunge, but your rear foot is elevated onto a bench. So that was for the glute max and for the glute medius, they found that the resisted prone hip abduction elicited the highest peak activity compared to other exercises such as um, side stepping, what I would call crab walks or what some people call monster walks, like a band around your knees and doing some side stepping and also side plank with leg abduction. So most people know what the side plank is and just getting your top leg and um, raising it. It seems like um, straight leg, open chain, hip abduction uh, recruits a lot more muscle fibers. So what they did was they had the participant like on a plyo box. They were almost, um, their stomach and their chest was like lying on the box and their legs were shooting out the back without any support. And then they had someone resist hip abduction, which was a bit strange, but... um, Safe to say, if you were doing standing, open chain, um, straight leg, hip abduction resisted stuff, um, that would be better glute bead muscle recruitment than doing, say, crab walks 
or monster walks, whatever you want to call them. Um, and they also did some like clamshelly sort of stuff and found um, that the other exercise was the best. Um, but the overall task or mission or purpose of the paper was to look at acceleration specific pre-activation exercises, which this is where it gets a bit more convoluted and complex because they had some very specific isometric exercises and they found that they actually recruited and helped pre-activate the glute more than say traditional exercises. But this is where I was sort of scratching my head being like, do I try to communicate this as much as possible? Because they're very complex in terms of um, the positions that they put themselves in. And they had pictures on the article. Um, They had like graphics of what exercises were done. I'll link it into the show notes if you are more interested, but even I couldn't really understand exactly what they're doing in the photos. And so it's going to be even more uh, tough for you to try and work out exactly what they're doing. Um, But still found a bit of uh, takeaways for you when it comes to the glute max and the glute med uh, recruitment and how tough um, certain exercises are. So these titles, the, um, the papers will be in listed in the show notes if you want to dive in, if that topic interests you more, but thought I'd take out some um, some key takeaways there. The next paper I want to look at were predictors of running-related injuries amongst recreational runners. It was a prospective cohort study that had a look at the role of perfectionism, mental toughness, and passion in running. I could only get the abstract, so I'm going to um, read that out because I think there were some pretty good findings in here and maybe something for you to self-reflect on as a runner. So they uh, found a total of 143 recreational runners, pretty good sample size. And they went through these online questionnaires and they looked at different characteristics about their running behaviors, um, psychological variables. So they had perfectionism, mental toughness, and their running passion, as well as uh, an injury survey. And so they recorded injuries and their responses and these questionnaire results for six months and then found out how many people got injured and seeing if there's any correlation there. The results. So the incidence of running related injuries at follow-up was about five per 1,000 hours of running and the knee was the location most often injured. It was at 26% followed by the foot at around about 20% and other lower leg uh, injuries at 13%. They found a higher obsessive passion for running and perfectionistic concerns was associated with greater running-related injuries. There have been studies that I'm aware of in the past that have looked at perfectionistic concerns, which would be like... uh, worried about your performance or um, let's just say stress about competing if you're in a running team or if you have a marathon coming up and you are worried that you are unable to perform. I have some people, it doesn't have to be a part of a team and like letting down teammates or letting down your tribe. It can be yourself. Um, I'm just thinking of a scenario where someone is improving their marathon time and wants to continuously improve, improve, improve every year and they're getting more and more concerned they can't reach that particular 
um, feet or maybe they're injured throughout their marathon training and it's now becoming a concern of um, their performance and they just need to get everything right. Everything needs to fall into place. Everything needs to go smoothly. If it doesn't, there's these negative consequences, I guess is my understanding of perfectionistic concerns. Um, slightly different from just like being a perfectionist because some people can, I guess, be self-labeled as a perfectionist and then not really worry when things do go wrong. Um, so there have been studies in the past that have found a pretty high correlation with running related injuries and perfectionistic concerns. So it's good that this paper has also identified that. Um, but this is the first paper that I know of that has looked at the higher, the the passion for running. And those who have a higher obsessive passion seem to have a link with running related injuries. Um, so let's have a think about that. <laughs> I think if you're listening to a running podcast, you're probably more passionate than other recreational runners. I'm just making a generalization there. But um, just know that sometimes being a perfectionist, sometimes being really passionate, it can probably lead to um, traits, behaviors that may not be too good for you because we know injuries are doing too much too soon, increasing your capacity to adapt, exceeding your capacity to adapt, uh, not recovering as much as you should, not running slow enough as you should on your easy days, like all those sorts of things. Um, I could definitely see someone with perfectionistic concerns and a high obsessive passion for running being within those traits, more likely to elicit those traits of running a bit too fast on their easy days, not really taking the necessary recovery days, um, those sorts of things. The paper did also find other links with injury that um, had a lower confidence interval, so not too sure where the correlation is or not, but they did comment, so I will comment. Um, they found a if they had a previous injury, there was a correlation with a future injury. Weekly running distance seemed to, they found an association there. Those who were either supinated or pronated, also there seemed to be a link there with injury, but the confidence level in those findings are skimpy, you could say. Um, but also they reported that following a running schedule, so if you have a training plan and you're sticking to that plan, seem to be associated with a lower risk of running related injuries. So again, uh, how does this go back to behaviors and patterns and traits? Um, if someone is following a plan, then they're less likely to run too fast, run too far, take less rest days um, because they have a schedule to stick to. And I would say, especially if that running schedule has assigned speeds and paces or heart rate zones or power zones, um, then it's less likely for you to push beyond the limits and push too far and develop some of these injuries. Okay, this next paper, we're just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. 
is an interesting one. I'm definitely going to do a YouTube video on this <clears throat> because it might require a bit of demonstration. Um, but also I've done one episode before on breathing, how to improve your breathing with running. And that's taking off on my YouTube channel at the moment. Um, and this would be a good follow up from that. <clears throat> so the title of this paper is called the effects or it's called effects of three weeks yogic breathing techniques on submaximal running responses. And they talk about this yogic, yogic, yogic breathing techniques um, have shown to have benefits towards resting lung functions in the past and in other studies. And they say that there's been a lack of research on the effects of this type of breathing on self-selected running velocity. To evaluate the impact of yogic breathing techniques on running velocity, participants completed two running sessions, which was pre and post intervention, in which they ran on a treadmill for five minutes at a prescribed RPE of four out of 10, which then increased during the same running bout to a seven out of 10 RPE for an additional five minutes. And they did this... Um, intervention strategy where they had the yogic breathing group. Um, they did <clears throat> across three consecutive weeks, they did 30 minutes of this breathing technique for six days out of the week. And they also had a control group that did no intervention. They just did their normal training as prescribed. Um, and then they repeated the same uh, thing after the three weeks after that intervention group did this these breathing techniques and see what they found. Um, but let's go through the breathing techniques and uh, I'm not going to pronounce these correctly, but they went through three types of breathing. So one is called Durga and it's got list here, diaphragmatic breathing, three part breath of filling three parts of the lung. So they would do a three part breath where they breathe through the belly, so the lower lung lobes, then the rib cage, which is the mid lung, and then the chest, which is upper lung. And there's uh, they point to other research articles that have a full description of how to do this, uh, which I didn't go into, but I will for the YouTube video. Um, but it seems like they're doing one breath in, one diaphragmatic breath where as you breathe in, you fill in the deepest part of your lungs, uh, the lowest part of your lungs, I should say. And then as you continue to breathe in, it then goes to the, the mid lung. And then as you continue to breathe in, you finish with that upper lung um, breath. Then you breathe out and you do that for 10 minutes. Each of these three different techniques were done for 10 minutes at a time. That leads to 30 minutes in total. Doing that over six days, that was the intervention group. So um, that's Durga. So that's one of the breathing techniques. This other one, let me try to pronounce this. Kapalabhati, I'm going to say. Uh, and as a description, they said this is a forceful exhalation. So quickly ex uh, contracting the abdominals and then a passive inhalation. Breathing out really forcefully and then breathing in in a passive manner. And you continue doing that. Um, that's what that technique is. Then we have Bastrika, I'm going to say. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, Bastrika, they said, is a rapid, yet, uh, a, a rapid yet complete inhalation and exhalation. This 
people are probably going to get lightheaded. I don't know. I'll give it a go during the YouTube video and see how I go. But they say, you know, rapid exhale, rapid inhale to full completion. And you do these both forceful yet equal in length. Do that for 10 minutes. Um, and so the results. So the intervention group went away and did this yogic breathing. They did those three types of breathing, 10 minutes each, 30 minutes uh, in total, six days per week. Then they came back and did this treadmill test. And they said the most critical findings of this study were that the yogic breathing technique improved self-selected running pace at both intensities. So remember, they did that four out of 10 RPE for five minutes, and they did the seven RPE for five minutes. And so it seems like they improved their running pace at both intensities, indicating that the velocity required to achieve an RPE of four and seven was increased in the yogic breathing group, indicating that habitual practice of yogic breathing may help running feel easier. Because essentially what you're doing is it's feeling easier so you can run faster at the same level of RPE. That, that seems to be what they've found. And so very interesting. Um, I'm sure a lot of people would be interested in that. And maybe these breathing techniques don't need to be so extreme because this is a lot. 30 minutes of breath work six times per week. But um, I could imagine that maybe doing less can have similar effects. I don't know. But interesting nonetheless. Okay, moving on, this time we're looking at some uh, rehab type of papers. I found a updated review, kind of like a systematic review on plantar fasciitis, if that interests you. Um, it's a large systematic review looking at how to diagnose, the type of scans, um, but I was more particularly interested, and you might be more particularly interested in the treatment. So there were essentially a systematic reviews getting a whole bunch of papers that have already been uh, published and bringing it all together to try to make sense of uh, a greater large sample of research. And so they've listed off a bunch of treatment modalities or treatment approaches and seeing what the research currently says. And so in the treatment section, they have a whole bunch of subcategories, the first being physical therapy. And this paper says... One randomized control trial assigned 84 patients to stretching or strengthening, and they say that both groups significantly reduced pain and had improved gait patterns in patients with plantar fasciitis. Uh, so essentially looking at the difference between stretching and strengthening, saying that they both had reduced pain, which is a good thing. But another randomized control trial compared uh, specific stretching with high load strengthening and both groups improved, but the high load strength training group had a quicker pain reduction and better improvements in function, which kind of makes sense. Like stretching makes things feel good, uh, can reduce pain, makes people feel better. But I would say that stretching doesn't really do much to improve the capacity of the tissue that's where strength comes in. And so this other RT, RCT saying that high load seemed to have a, well, a quicker pain reduction to start with, but then better functional outcomes would make sense. 
for you, if you do have plantar fasciitis, um, I would maybe recommend doing both. What's the harm in doing both? Both have shown to show improvements in pain and one of them has shown to have improvements in function. So why not give both? And like, I guess my best and favorite exercise would be a double leg calf raise into toe extension. So you've got like a, a rolled up towel or something underneath your toes so that when you come up into a calf raise, it's loading up the fascia a little bit more and uh, putting a little bit more stretch while under load through that fascia. That's usually my um, approach. And then we start with that. We add some weights, then we go to single leg, then we add single leg with weights and you just work your way through that progressive loading structure. Um, So that's what physical therapy is identified in this review. They talk about medication. They say that one RCT randomly assigned patients to either a placebo group or a NSAID, so um, non-steroidal anti-inflammation drug. And they also had, in addition, a conservative treatment, so just doing nothing. But they all included uh, heel cord stretches, so just calf stretches, heel cups, and night splinting. And they showed that the NSAID group had an increase in pain relief and decreased disability. So seems that, I guess in particular, while things are quite sensitive and painful, it does seem like a anti-inflammation drug can help be an accessory to the settle down pain and provide pain relief. Another subcategory was night splints. And they said that the evidence of a night splint when treating plantar fasciitis is conflicting. An RCT concluded that a tension night splint does not lead to significant additional benefits in either pain, function, or flexibility in addition to a structured home program. But another RCT showed that there was... Another RCT showed that there was no significant improvement as well uh, when adding in a non steroidal anti-inflammation drug. However, there was an RCT that showed that the application of foot orthoses with adjustable night splints was more effective than just the, th- the foot orthosis group alone. So they sort of had both groups, foot orthoses, one group out of those doing the night splint and the night splint group showed to be a bit more favorable. So that's why they say Night splints, conflicting. I would say, um, depending on your pain levels and how severe it is, you could try it. Doesn't wouldn't necessarily have too much adverse reactions. And if it makes you better, continue with it. But um, I think in the past, I haven't seen it to be that effective with clients, but worth a try. Shockwave was the last one that I thought I'd mention. They said that they, well, they found a meta-analysis that evaluated nine RCTs and showed that Shockwave had higher improvement rates in treating plantar fasciitis than a placebo. So that's positive. Um, A network meta-analysis in 2018 included 19 trials showed that Shockwave induced significant pain reduction compared to placebo in the short term and intermediate term of two to four months. So if these other... Because Shockwave can be expensive can be um, a bit of a barrier for some people i would say try some stretches try some strengthening exercises maybe try some night splints um definitely i would try like some heel cups uh 
in your shoes. These are relatively inexpensive and can help things. But I guess if all of these aren't necessarily moving the needle, then maybe Shockwave uh, might be a candidate for you. But consult with your therapist and see what your unique situation is to see if it is a, um, a, a good option for you. And while we're on the topic of plantar fasciitis, I came across another paper. So I'm done with that review that I was just mentioning before. This is another thing that's come across onto my desk. The title was leg length discrepancy is not a risk factor for plantar fasciitis. Again, the title sort of gives away what they found, but the results were the analysis showed an independent association with plantar fasciitis only with age and not an association with lower leg discrepancy. So uh, with the cohort that they studied, seems like age, the older you are, the more likely you were to have plantar fasciitis. But when looking at leg length discrepancy, there wasn't an association. They continue to say, we did not observe differences in the mean discrepancy or in the prevalence of lower leg discrepancy between groups. So if you have a larger Leg length discrepancy doesn't necessarily mean you're at a greater risk of developing plantar fasciitis. However, interestingly enough, they said that in the plantar fasciitis group, those that did develop plantar fasciitis, 80% of them reported unilateral pain, so um, pain on one side. And they say, we observed a higher prevalence of pain in the shorter limb. So when someone does have plantar fasciitis, and when someone, and when that plantar fasciitis is only in one foot, it seems to be in the shorter side, but doesn't necessarily mean that, well, this paper will show that it doesn't mean that it's be, it didn't develop the injury. It's not the cause of the injury, but maybe be, once you have that injury, you may be more sensitive to pain if it is in that shorter side. That's how I'm interpreting it anyway. Okay, we have, how many? Two more to go. This one's a, a quick one that I just thought I'd mention. Um, if you do have insertional Achilles tendinopathy, this paper was titled Immediate and Short-Term Effects of Insole Heel Lift Orthoses on Clinical and Biomechanical Outcomes in Patients with Insertional Achilles Tendinopathy. These titles get quite long, but essentially looking at those who have insertional Achilles tendinopathy. So this is talking about um, as it attaches closer to the bone rather than the more common mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, which is sort of in the mid-belly of the tendon, you might call it. It's like two to three inches up from the attachment. Uh, two to five centimeters, I think they say. Um, and so the conclusion of this paper was that using heel lifts not only improved symptom severity after two weeks, but also immediately reduced pain during walking and had a positive impact on gait pattern and speed. So people were having these immediate responses when using heel lifts, um, and it also helped improve symptoms over two weeks. So some positive stuff if you do have an acute bout of insertional Achilles tendinopathy, maybe having some in-shoe heel lifts uh, will be uh, something in adjunct to other manual therapies and physiotherapies and that sort of stuff. All right. Um, the last one was uh, that I wanted to mention is titled, What is known about the health effects of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs 
NSAIDs and its use in marathon and ultra endurance running. A scoping review. This doesn't really apply to me, <laughs> might apply to you, especially those who are endurance runners. Um, they say this is a systematic scoping review aimed to understand the extent and scope of evidence on the health risks of NSAIDs in the use of marathon and ultra endurance running. NSAIDs are commonly consumed by runners to combat pain and inflammation. However, the health risks of consuming these drugs during marathon and ultra running events are currently not fully understood. They did a scoping review and they said that four databases were searched to identify articles focusing on running events of marathon distance or further. And they must report having, or they must include reports of health risks of NSAID use. They found 30 studies when they put out that criteria and it included in the literature um, five categories. So they say that the, the literature showed that potential health concerns of NSAID use could be split into five categories. So we're looking at five areas of health concerns. Area number one is electrolyte balance and hyponatremia. So hyponatremia would be um, if someone's really sweating a lot and losing a lot of sodium in that sweat and then replacing it with just um, plain water, the concentration of sodium and concentration of your blood levels um, get out of whack and then can cause major health concerns. The second health category was acute kidney injury. The third was gastrointestinal dis disturbance. The fourth is oxidative stress, inflammation, and muscle damage. And then they put as the fifth one here, other medical concerns. So do, do NSAID, the use of NSAIDs uh, impact these five areas? The results, they say that none of these sections had clear statistically significant links with NSAID use in ultra endurance running. However, potential links were shown especially in the acute kidney injury and electrolyte balance. So those first two um, categories I mentioned before. This review suggests there is very limited evidence to show that NSAIDs had a negative impact on the health of ultra running athletes. Indications from a few non-randomized studies show that um, there may be some effects in kidney function, but needs further exploring with more high quality research. Um, just thought I'd throw this one out there because it is a, quite an interesting one. So there is no compelling statistically significant link to show that it's harmful in terms of health in these domains, but there has been some lower quality things, studies to show that it may have some negative impact, particularly on the kidneys but uh, and electrolyte imbalance, but nothing definitive yet. That's it for the month of February. Um, there were a a bunch of other articles, one that I probably couldn't get the full um, the full paper for or ones that I thought might not be as interesting, might not be as hard, or might be a bit more difficult to describe on a podcast. But um, I hope you're finding these effective. I I've definitely just in reviewing and organizing this podcast episode, learning more and more each time. So um hope you enjoy. I will endeavor to bring out another one next month and I'll usually try to time them so it's at the end of each month and 
um, yeah, we'll see what, what comes of it. I have no idea what's around the corner. We'll wait to see what turns up on my desk. But in the meantime, remember, every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough. If you are struggling to overcome an injury, you can jump on a free 20-minute injury chat with me, which you can book through my calendar in the show notes. While you're in the show notes, elevate your running IQ by jumping onto my free email list so you can receive material to help rehab your injury, lower your injury risk, and increase your performance. If emails aren't for you, consider my Facebook group, Instagram, and YouTube channels. And remember, each insight you get from these resources brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough.